This is the Doubles Only Tennis Podcast, where you learn the best tips and strategies in the world to help you become a smarter, more effective tennis player. You'll hear interviews with pro tour doubles players and coaches, including easy to use lessons to improve your game and win more matches. My name is Will Bocek, founder of the Tennis Tribe, doubles strategy coach, and host of the show. In this episode, I talk with ATP doubles player Rajiv Ram. Rajiv is number 15 in the world in doubles right now, and last year he reached a career high of number five. He won the 2020 Australian Open uh, in men's doubles, and then he also the previous year won the 2019 mixed doubles crown in Australia. Uh, Back in 2016, he won the silver medal at the Rio Games with Venus Williams, Uh, And he's also reached as high as 56 in the world in singles. So he has had a a very long and very successful uh, tennis career. When I catch up with him here, he is down in Australia. He is in quarantine, and he is one of the players that is not allowed to leave his hotel room for 14 days. So he doesn't even get uh, the five-hour window for training that a lot of players are getting. So... Starting out in this conversation, I just check in with him and ask him how he's doing. How is he able to uh, train being stuck in a hotel room 24-7? So we talk a little bit about that before diving into his career as well as a lot of double strategy. So a few things that we discuss include world team tennis, how he got started in tennis, his college career, advice he would have for players thinking about or trying to decide between playing in college versus going pro. We talk about a day in 2009 when he played what we believe is a record four ATP matches in one day. We also talk about his transition from singles to doubles. Uh, In 2016 or 17, he kind of started to um, transition and really focus mostly on doubles. Uh, Then we discuss game planning. So we talk about in-match strategy, how he and his partner, Joe Salisbury, make in-match adjustments. We talk about his biggest strength and weakness as a player, his favorite position on the court, when he and Joe like to signal versus talk about serve location and poaching and uh, movement on the court. And then we also discuss what it's going to take for doubles to be more popular on the pro tour. Specifically, I ask him uh, if he could change one thing about the pro tour, what would it be? And then at the very end, I ask him a few rapid fire questions like his favorite book, his favorite tournament, what singles player he would play doubles with if he could choose. Uh, And then he has a story for us at the end as always. And uh, before you get into the conversation. Uh, One last thing. He is, like I said, in quarantine in his hotel room and the internet is a little bit spotty. So we've edited it as best we can, uh, but there are some uh, glitches in the audio that you will notice. Um, It's not your headphones going out or anything like that. So uh, bear with us. Uh, We did the best we could, but we definitely wanted to get this conversation to you because it's a really, uh, really fun and insightful conversation. So Without further ado, enjoy this episode with Rajiv Ram. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Today we have Rajiv Ram on. Rajiv, welcome. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, And I wanted to start 
with um, the whole situation in Australia, uh, you're, I just found out today actually that you were one of the players that are on the, the strict quarantine. Um, and I spend all week, every week, working for my laptop. And sometimes towards the end of the week, I'll be like, oh, I got to go be around people. You know, I'll get a little lonely or uh, something like that. But being in a hotel room for 14 days, like I cannot imagine what that's like. So I wanted to start by asking, like, how are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of had the same fears a bit uh, when this whole thing started. I'm doing OK. Thanks for asking. I do appreciate that. Um, it's definitely tricky. Um, funnily enough, I don't really I'm not struggling to find things to fill my day. I actually kind of developed a bit of a routine in here. But what is difficult is just like not being able to, you know, go outside or not be able to leave this room, even though I've got a decent sized room and all that. It's just that's the that's the difficult part. Sure. Yeah, I can only imagine. Um, so where were you when you found out that you were going to be part of this strict quarantine group? Were you like on the plane or on the bus to the hotel or? No. So, yeah, so our uh, the tests came back or sorry, we, we got a test taken, a test done after we got to the hotel. So we were basically taken from the plane to the bus, bus to the hotel, and then had a test at, at the hotel. And that result came back a few hours later. And then a bit after that, we got an email from our flight saying there was, uh, I think two or three, I think two at the time on our flight and the health um, officials decided that our flight would be entirely quarantined. So it was the first day that we got here. Mm. So you were, you were in the hotel room. I was in the hotel room, already did my test, yeah. Okay. Got it. Okay. And what, what went through your mind when you like get that text or email or whatever? I just yeah. You know, it was a, obviously a bummer. I was like, Oh man, but you know, this has kind of been the deal with the, throughout the whole pandemic is that this is what they've done for all their citizens and you know, any, anyone else. Um, we were going to get lucky and, and trying to get out of uh, or get a modified quarantine, not get out of it, get a modified quarantine and we could be out for five hours. But, uh, you know, yeah, I was definitely disappointed that, uh, um, you know, I was going to be part of that. But my, my, my other reaction was that that means that there was positive cases on our plane and uh, we'll concern more about, you know, hopefully not contracting the virus uh, um, that, than anything else, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so, so you literally can't go outside, like can't even open your door to go outside the hotel room at all. It's like, that's like I can door. open my door. They, they put, uh, they put little brown bags of food. Yeah. They put little brown bags of food outside the door and I can, I can pick that up. Um, but I can't actually like take a step outside my door. Okay. Gosh. Yeah. Well, I'm glad it's going as well as it can so far. Yeah. Um, so, so what is, uh, right now, what, what kind of routine have you gotten into as far as like workouts and stuff like that? Yeah. So tennis Australia has been, been helpful. They've provided a, a bit of equipment first. I got a bike in my room and, um, a couple of weights and a kettlebell and, uh, I brought some bands with me. And so I kind of try to do two workouts a day. I, I do one in the morning, just more of a mobility, you know, activation, if you will, sort of session. And then, um, yeah, we usually have a couple of, uh, player calls and, you know, do some stuff, uh, like that. And then I do a, a full workout in the afternoon, either, you know, some agility stuff, some, you know, a little biking, um, maybe some work with the bands, you know, try to mix it up, um, each day. So I, I kind of do two workouts a day, um, that I sort of center uh, the day around, if you will. Got it. How long are those workouts? 
Nah, each one's about an hour, let's say. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And what what would it look like normally if we were not in a pandemic? What would your kind of week or two before the uh, Australian Open look like? If we were not in a pandemic, that is a great question. It feels like another life ago. Um, <laughs> so probably would have been this year, the ATP Cup would have been the normal size, which means we probably would have qualified. So would have probably, well, in February, I don't know what, or sorry, in late January, we would have been at the end of the Australian Open, but let's just assume it yeah. was normal time. It would have been, yeah, the ATP Cup this week, um, like it was last year. And then, um, you know, at last year we were in Adelaide, I, I guess it would have probably been the same thing. So yeah, two warm up tournaments. I would have, we would have already been, you know, well into the competition, um, of okay. the tournaments that precede the Australian Open. Right. Okay. And they, they have a few warm up tournaments coming up, right? But are you just not allowed to play those or? No, I'm allowed to play them. So there's only one week of warm-up tournaments. So there's three tournaments going on in the same week. So it's the oh, ATP right. Cup, which was reduced, which we didn't qualify for. Uh, the U.S. didn't qualify for. And then there's two 250 events, which you can obviously only play one. So, yeah, at this point, uh, Joe and I are going to play one of those two. Okay, got it. And is that – that's there in Melbourne at the uh... – All all that's happening in Melbourne Park, which is where the Australian Open takes place. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. That makes sense. Um so next, I wanted to ask you about uh, World Team Tennis. So last year was, I think it was the first time I had watched World Team Tennis. Um, and obviously they did that like kind of condensed season all at uh, the, the Greenbrier in West Virginia. I could not get enough of it. I was obsessed with uh, the format and the team aspect and all that stuff. I thought it was a great... Uh, great event. I wanted to get your take from a player's perspective um, on how do you like the world team tennis type format compared to like the regular tour? Um, would you like to see more of that? Things like that. Um, I think tennis when played in a team format is the best form of the sport, um, whether that's high school tennis, college tennis, Olympics, Davis cup, fed cup, um, I think it's, I think it's when the players get the most into it. I think they, you know, the fans get the most into it. It's sort of the same sport, but a, 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 for me, a way better atmosphere than um, we play, you know, we play with 90% of the time on tour. So I love it. Mm -hmm. um, it was, I, I subbed a bunch for team tennis. I played a full season for San Diego back in 2017, I think it was. And last year playing for Chicago. What about, so one thing that I really liked about uh, world team tennis was the, um, the way the sets work. So the, the sets are first to five uh, tie break at four all. So especially for doubles, that makes so much more sense to me. Cause you win, if you win up a break, you're at five, three and everybody's served twice versus normally six, four, two players have, uh, an extra service game. Um, do you like that format or would you like to see any sort of like scoring format changes on uh, the, the ATP tour? On the main tour? Um, I think it's a, I think that's a great format for the team situation. Cause I think it, it goes quickly and, it, and you, you kind of get from one event to the next and uh, mm -hmm. you know, everybody can play there, you know, the, the whole, the whole match, you know, one team against another, all five events can be decided in a, in a decent amount of time on tour. I would actually say, you know, what we have is fine. I, I, I wouldn't be opposed to reducing, um, 
the sets to, to maybe like you're saying, uh, you know, first to four or whatever it is, uh, uh, or first to five, excuse me. But I think, um, I think what I would get away from on tour is, is the sudden death, uh, deuce points. I feel like, um, in doubles, I feel like if, if that, if that happens and, uh, I just think it's it's a bit, it would be a bit more fair if we had full scoring. Um, even if we had to have shorter sets, that's fine. But full scoring uh, in the games. But I love the ten point tiebreaker. I think that's one of the best things we have in our sport. I think it's exciting. I think the best team most oftentimes wins anyway. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think it's great. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I, I think that um, yeah, I feel like most of the majors. The, the whole like singles debate on what's the best format. Uh, and yeah, I, I like the, I think it's the Australian open that does the 10 point tiebreaker at, at six all or eight all or something like that. You mean for the singles? Yeah. Yeah. For singles. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, a, I don't know exactly this. I think it's six all that they decided to put in a 10 point tiebreaker in the final set of these matches. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that makes a ton of sense to me because it's, it, it removes the, uh, chance for luck that you have in or, or at least it minimizes the chance for luck that you have in that seven point tiebreaker right yeah exactly a 10 point tiebreaker is actually a lot longer than people realize and, and um you know there's a lot of a lot of things that can happen so i for us playing that as a, a third set i got no problem with that i think uh i think that uh, the, the sudden death do sometimes yeah sometimes it it, it takes a, a it brings in a little bit more luck than than it should yeah yeah exactly uh, so tell us your your story. How did you get started in tennis? Um, uh, I know you grew up in uh, Indiana, I believe. Um, t- tell us your story, kind of how you got to where you are now. Yeah, um, moved around a, a fair bit as a kid, actually. I uh, was born in Colorado really shortly after, like a month after moved to Northern California. Uh, started my tennis there, actually, um, with my dad. It was just a, a father-son activity that we did. You know, I, I played a lot of sports when I was a kid. I'm an only child, but played a lot of sports, was really active, and just took to tennis more than more than the others. <clears throat> um, don't come from a tennis-playing family whatsoever, but something that, you know, my dad and I did together. Um, and then when I was, let's see, maybe five-ish, six, five, six years old, we moved to Wisconsin. Definitely not the hotbed of tennis in America by any stretch, okay. but uh, just all for my, my dad's work. Um, and continued playing, continued playing basically just with him uh, there, along with a few others. Um, funnily enough, one of the others I played with a fair bit was Bethany Maddock, who also lived in Wisconsin at the time oh, uh, when we were kids. Cool. And then um, when I was about 12, we moved to Indiana um, again for, for my dad's work. And uh, that was kind of where we settled, if you will. I was in seventh grade at the time. Um, and yeah, pretty much should have called that home since and um, started to yeah, it was around a few more good players started to really see improvements in my game. And, um, you know, it really started to, to become a lot more serious for me, uh, when we moved there, probably when I was around 15, 16 years old, which is actually pretty late for someone that ended up making a career out of tennis. Okay. And then you went on to play at Illinois, right? Yeah. Um, played at Illinois. I, by the time I got to, uh, that point, I was, going to make my college decision i was definitely going to go to college but i was going to make the decision based on what was best for my tenant mm-hmm. um and illinois was easily the best option um the best team the best coach close to home which was important to me because i have a great relationship with my coach brian smith back home who started we started working together when i was about 15 years old and uh, we still do um so i wanted to be still you know close to him it's only two hours from indy um and yeah it, it just ticked all the boxes for me really Cool. So what's your, um, a lot of people talk about 
you know, these players who go straight to pro versus going to college, what's your take on, uh, on all that, like where it is now and where it's trending? Um, I guess maybe a better question is what would you tell a, an 18 year old or 17 year old who's, who's trying to make that decision? I would tell them if they are basically competing, you know, decently successfully at the, at the challenger level at 17, 18 years old, then it's a consideration to forego college um, or, or higher, obviously um, anything below that though. I feel like college is a great option um, and you see a lot of players um, that have made careers in tennis. I'm, they're definitely not, not like winning slam careers, but they've made really good careers for themselves in tennis. And, and for me, I think that a vast majority of those players, and these are, these are, I'm talking about players that went to college, a vast majority of those players uh, would not have made careers in tennis had they not gone to college. Um, a few examples would be like, uh, I say, and I say that with the utmost, utmost respect, but like a Cam Nori or a Dominic Kupfer, um, or uh, even if you get a little bit better, I, I, I really think Kevin Anderson and John Isner would not have had the careers they had if they didn't go to college. So, I mean, I think, you know, these guys are playing tennis at the highest levels. And I don't think, I think that would have been not the case if they, uh, if they had gone straight into the pros. Hmm. So what, what about college do you think made their career more successful than it would have otherwise been? I think you get the opportunity to practice first of all, with a bunch of other really good players on a daily basis, which is huge. Um, you just get those repetitions in that competitive environment because at the end of the day, you don't even want to lose the people on your team, even though you are a team and the, the practices are sometimes the, the, the times where you get the most benefit, which is definitely what happened to me um, at, at Illinois. Um, and then you get a number of guaranteed matches over the course of a season. Um, all of those being with the pressure of, you know, not only playing for yourself, but playing for your team, which is just like we talked about before, one of the things that makes you know, team environment so special. And I think that's great. And then, you know, on top of that, you get a situation where you have you know, strength and conditioning taken care of to a certain point. You have all of those things that become very difficult on tour to do. You kind of have it catered to you. And I think it's just a great opportunity to, to develop as a player to then put yourself in the position where you're actually ready to compete with the guys on the pro tour, as opposed to how you weren't at, as an 18 year old. Interesting. Okay. I, I'd never thought about it like that. So you, you just have access to, it sounds a lot more resources. Completely. Yeah. I mean, you're make it in yeah. challengers or futures or whatever. Yeah. It's not just about the results. It's about the, the ability. Cause at that point as an 18 year old, you're not, you're not polished. You're not finished. You're, you're whether you play professionally or whether you play in college, you're still trying to develop your game to try and improve, try to get to the, the higher levels. And, and so if it's a development situation for the first, let's say three years, your options are doing it on tour or doing it in college. And um, I think the much safer option, let's say, is to do it in college um, mm -hmm. because, you know, there's always going to be, there's always going to be the next match. There's always, and, and like you said, everything's going to be taken care of. Whereas on, in the pros, it's not the case. Mm. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. So uh, next I wanted to, so I was uh, reading through your Wikipedia page today and I live in Texas. I play a lot of league and USTA uh, tournaments here. And sometimes if we play a couple of events like men's doubles and mixed doubles or singles and doubles, we'll have to play four matches in a day. And yeah. we, we always talk about, they never have to do that on pro tour. Um, at the majors, they play every other day. Uh, these other tournaments, they play maybe once a day or twice a day. And I'm reading through your Wikipedia page. And on July 10th, 2009, 
you played four matches in a day and won all four of them. So talk us through that day. Yeah. Is it like? Um, yeah. So it was at, yeah, it was at Newport. Um, we had a bunch of a rain, a bunch of rain in that earlier in the week. So that tournament couldn't start until like, I can't remember what it was. That's been so long, but it was maybe the Thursday was the first day of the tournament. So we were able to get a few matches in on Thursday. And I think it was that Friday, excuse me, that Friday where I had to play two singles and two doubles. And I remember I ended up winning the first three matches, the two, the first two singles and the, and the, the first, uh, the, the, the first doubles match. And I mean, I was 25 years old and I was like, they're like, look, you, you're on the schedule. You can play this match or you cannot." And I was, you know, I was actually feeling, obviously if you won three matches, I was feeling great at the time. And I was like, you know what? Um, if I keep going in this tournament, I want to kind of reduce the amount of matches I have on the, on the very back end. So yeah, let's go ahead and do it. And just decided to, to give it a whirl and, and fourth one. And it obviously worked out great because I ended up winning both events that week. But I mean, that's the kinds of things you can do at 25 that I would have had no chance to at 35. <laughs> right. That's amazing. Is that a, uh, do you know if that's like an ATP record or anything? I, I don't know for sure, but I think so. I don't even know. I don't even necessarily know that people have attempted to play four matches, so I'm not sure, right. but I, uh, I, I would think so. It's yeah, by my it's unofficial record for matches played and matches one in a day. So next, um, I wanted to ask, so you played singles a lot throughout your career and then now you're uh, primarily, it seems like focused on doubles. At what point did you make that decision to transition towards uh, really focusing just on doubles? Um, and how did you go about that decision? Yeah. I mean, I played singles as a priority for the first, you know, until basically 2016. Uh, mm -hmm. And at the end of 2016 was my last year, I would say of prioritizing singles completely. Um, I had played over a hundred matches in, in that year in 2016, um, had some great highs and some tough lows, but it was just a long season. And I just felt like at the end of that, I still could play at a really high level in singles, a top hundred level. But I felt like if I had another one of those seasons again, that, that might do it for my tennis career. I, or I felt like I, there was a chance of that, whether it be because of injury or just because of the toll it takes. And I never really given doubles a, a full shot as far as, uh, you know, as far as, um, you know, focusing on it entirely. And I felt like I, if I didn't want to leave tennis without doing that, I felt like I would leave something on the table to a certain extent. So the decision was kind of staring me at the face at that point that I had to pick one or the other. And, and uh, like I said, I, I knew I didn't want to leave that, leave that stone unturned. Um, so decided at that off season that the next year going forward, it would be, unless I was able to somehow pull a rabbit out of a hat and keep, keep my singles ranking, I would play entirely a double schedule and, uh, you know, kind of see how it goes and, and play singles whenever it was, when it was available, but not, not any extra tournaments because of my singles, not do anything like that. And so, yeah, um, kind of lasted about a half a year. And, and then I, I just felt like I didn't, yeah, I wasn't really, if I wasn't going to put myself into it. I, I wasn't going to do it at all. So decided to play my last match at, at Newport, which is a place where I, I had some great memories. So. Cool. So when, um, so when you made that decision, did you have any idea on how much longer you thought at the time you'd be able to play? I mean, now we're into 2021. Uh, you just won a grand slam last year. I mean, it doesn't seem like you're, uh, towards the end of your career by any means. No, I didn't really have a, I never, I've never really had a timeline on my tennis career. You know, I always said that 
I would stop playing when there, whether, uh, sorry, it wasn't fun anymore or where I felt like I couldn't get any better. And those two things kind of go hand in hand for me. If, you know, the, the part that's super enjoyable for me in doing this is feeling like you can get better every day. Um, and that hasn't happened yet. So don't really have a timeline on it, but if that were to happen at some point, then, you know, that would be the end of it. But, um, I feel like I still have, uh, some room to go and, um, yeah, looking, looking forward to, you know, hopefully continuing on this path. Absolutely. So, uh, Next, I wanted to ask you about doubles partners. So you've played with a number of different partners in your career. Uh, how do you decide who to play with? Um, I know you and Joe are playing again together this year, it seems like, which uh, for two straight years, I, I feel like that's kind of uncommon uh, today. But um, I don't know. What, what do you think? Uh, how do you decide on choosing a partner and uh, all that sort of thing? Yeah. I mean, I know I've played with a lot of people in my, in my career, but most of them have been, um, when I was playing singles and when I was playing singles, it was sort of like, okay, yeah. Who wants to play this week? Let's play some dubs. Let's, you know, and just kind of, it, it was definitely, a, a um, not the priority. Right. So it was sort of a secondary thought when it came to it, you know, between singles and doubles. But after I started playing doubles more seriously, I've really only had two partners, um, two serious partners I had Raven Clausen, who we played from 2016 and 17, a little bit in 2015 too. And then uh, Joe, um, and this is going to be our third year together. We've, we played two seasons together. So this is going to be our third season together. Um, but I, I really feel like, you know, chemistry and, and getting along with the person and, and sort of being able to have uh, something of a relationship off the court. I just think it makes it so much better because, you know, when you get to these, you know, ends of these big tournaments and, and these big matches, I mean, everybody, plays pretty well, but it's kind of the team that sticks together the best and, and sort of, uh, you know, gels the best. They seem to, you know, tip the scale in their favor a little bit. And I think that's really important. So, you know, the first thing for me is before all the X's and O's of forehands and backhands is, you know, do, do I get along with the person? Am I, am I, are we, you know, are we compatible? Do we, you know, do we have that chemistry? And, and then you can start talking about sort of, okay, how does your game style match up with mine and, and all that stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. So, so how feel, how big, of an advantage do you feel like that is for y'all i mean maybe i'm wrong here but it does seem like uh going into like a third season with the same partner is uh becoming a little more rare uh on the doubles scene but i don't know correct me if i'm wrong there yeah it is it always surprises me when some of the teams you hear that they're splitting at the end of the season for whatever reason it just uh you know, I, I, I find it uh, a little surprising, but, you know, to each his own, but I think, I mean, I'd like to think it is, I, I don't know if anyone else does, but I'd like to think that playing with the same person for, you know, the, the longer you play with somebody, the more you tend to grow and the more you tend to figure things out and, and, and be a bit more compatible, if you will, or, uh, you know, you gel a little bit better. So I think it is an advantage for sure, especially in situations like, like we're in right now. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm in a hotel room, Joe's actually getting to practice, but if we were a new pair, and we had to go straight away and play, you know, one tournament in the Australian Open. I think it would be really tough, but I don't think any either one of us is freaking out too much about that situation because we had uh, so many hours of playing together, you know, already. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so let's see. So walk us through uh, your kind of pre-match preparation. So if you let's say you're playing like a quarterfinal or semifinal at the Australian Open. What what is the twenty four hours leading up to that match look like? Um, 
You know, it kind of depends, obviously. I mean, sometimes you have a match the day before you play consecutive days and then it's like, you know, just it's all about recovery and it's all about uh, just, you know, getting prepared and all that. But sometimes maybe you have a day off and you have some time to think. So it really depends on the situation. But if if there is that day off, I think a lot of it is, uh, you know, we, we come into these big tournaments trying to feel like we've already done the work and, and we've already prepared for ourselves for those situations. So, you know, if you're in, a, I think that the, the team or the player that is able to keep it the most simple and stick to their guns and believe in what they're doing or is the team that gives himself the best or the team or player that gives himself the best chance. So, I mean, if we're in that position, we're obviously playing well there, you know, whoever we're going to play against is playing well. And I think it's really all about just trying to, you know, be at your best and, and, you know, both, you know, mentally, physically, and, and, and gives you the best chance to execute well. Cause that's usually what it comes down to in a, in a situation like, you know, where you're at the end of a major. Sure. So what, what is the um, kind of the game planning process look like for you and Joe? Like if, if you know you're about to play a particular team, do y'all like sit down the night before and say like, okay, here's who we're playing. We've got this scouting report on them. Or do y'all mostly just focus on, you know, your side of the net, which you can control. Um, talk me through uh, kind of planning for a particular team. Yeah, you know, this is where every, everybody's different, right? Some people like to go in with more information. Some people like to go with less. And in our, our particular case, Joe probably likes a little bit more information than me. It doesn't mean that I don't like any, but uh, you know, he probably he probably likes a little bit more. And uh, yeah, so it depends on the timing. But if it, if it is the night before, um, you know, we will sit down and talk quite a lot about you know, okay, what do they do? What, you know, our opponents, I mean, uh, as far as their maybe tendencies and their sort of strategy and, and, and their game styles and how we can, you know, implement our, what we do against them. And then, um, you know, he might do an, an extra session with our, with our coach that I won't be a part of just if he wants a little bit more information and whatnot. But, you know, if, if you're talking, about the, the the bigger matches you know a lot of times we, we played a lot of these teams you know many times so there's not a whole lot of surprises but it's still good to go over that information and then the day of we usually do quite a lot of uh just talking about ourselves and our execution and and what we need to do to, to play at our best so it's like the stuff about our opponents is in the back of our minds for sure um no question because we went over it the day before but uh you know the day of is is more about what, what we do as a team and what we do well and, and sort of how, how we would want uh, the match to look like um on our end got it so, so what does that look like? Do y'all have like a, like a notebook with notes on every team or do y'all look at film or, or what, what specifically? Uh, yeah, a little bit, of, a little bit of everything, a little bit of everything. I mean, I don't have, a, I don't personally have a notebook. I, I honestly don't know if Joe does or not, but uh, Rob, our coach definitely does. And he, he keeps, he keeps various notes on, on teams. And yeah, you know, we have access to, you know, the film that most other people do anyway, but you know, uh, if there is a situation where we can get, match or something of of another team uh that we're going to play against that we, we we would watch it but again that's sort of also where our coaches help out is maybe they would watch the match and pick out a few things that they think are important to to relay to us so you know we don't have to watch the match and it's not really a matter of time but it's just a matter of you can kind of get over overclouded with information and be a bit you know a bit unclear so i think we leave most of the video watching at least I do up to, up to our coach and, um, you know, and Joe, if he wants to do it, but again, that's where people are different, right? I, I don't, I don't like to watch video of, of, uh, of a team that we have to play. I'd rather just kind of know the information and, and be shown small clips, if you will. Um, and, uh, maybe somebody, some other people like to like to watch, you know, matches upon matches of teams that they have to play. So that's how we go about it. Interesting. So why do, why don't you like to watch the match video? That's interesting to me. Um, I feel like for me, you know, if, if, 
if I kind of, I, I just that I, if, if I have too much information, I could kind of get a little bit, mm. a bit cloudy and a bit unclear um, as to what the, what we're, what I'm going to try and do out there, what I think might happen. I think I, I'm at my best sometimes when I have an idea and I have an idea of tendencies, but I, I still, I still react to the situation um, that's presented in front of me a bit more. Um, so doesn't mean I don't want any information, but it means that uh, I, I want a little bit of room to to use my own inst- instincts and, and my own intuition and my own feel out there. And I feel like sometimes if I have too much information, that, that gets a little bit tougher for me to do. Okay. That makes sense. Got it. So what about during a match? So let's say you're, you know, y'all have gone through your game planning. Uh, you, you know, have practiced the morning of the match, then you're out there and let's say things like kind of aren't going your way. How do y'all go about making those in-match adjustments? Um, well, one of the things I think we do pretty well, and it's just happened over the years of, uh, you know, two years playing together is we, we do communicate pretty, <clears throat> excuse me, pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, if somebody feels something, if somebody, you know, notices something, we, we just, you know, we say it, uh, we, don't, we don't hold back, whether it's right, wrong, or otherwise, um, we, we kind of put it out there. And so I think, uh, I think that's one of the things that maybe allows us to also navigate our way through a situation that maybe is not happening like we thought and uh, make in-match adjustments. I guess for us, the way that we would deal with, you know, making a, making an in-match adjustment is, is really by, um, basically communicating if one of us feels something or sees something we have to say it um um and that's how you know we discuss it right wrong or otherwise we we, we discuss it and we come up with an you know a way to to deal with whatever whatever the situation is um but if you don't say it if somebody's noticing something and they don't say it and the other person may not notice it at all and you might go whole match and and not make an adjustment and therefore lose an opportunity and so we've had that happen for sure before and we've kind of made it a point you know for that to try and you know mitigate that as much as possible because i feel like you know where there's two of us out there we trust ourselves to to see most things to make adjustments and uh, between the two of us we should be able to come up with it and um but it's just about kind of communicating that to the other the other person and, and come, coming up with a plan so what, what's an example of a match where uh y'all were doing that maybe you were like down a break in the first set or something and you notice something and you make an adjustment and then it works out in your favor in any particular matches come to mind? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, an example of that. Let me think. If one pops out. Um, I can't really say an example of, I can't think of one exactly of, of an example of, of playing other opponents and, and changing a strategy per se, but there's been many examples of, you know, of one of us not feeling great on the court and relaying that and then coming up with, to deal with that. For example, there was one match, I think it was second, first or second, second round of the French open this year. The French open was really weird. It was played in September. It was freezing cold. It was raining most of the days. And I don't do so well in cold weather. I just, you know, just it's not my, not my favorite. And so I remember going out there and I, I missed a couple of volleys and I was like, man, Joe, I'm just not feeling it. Like I, I don't, the ball feels terrible on my racket. I, I said something to him and, you know, it just even saying that made me feel like at least I'm not just nervous now about missing shots. And and he was just like, okay, that's fine. You know, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, do something to try and warm yourself up a little bit more or, or, you know, jump around a little bit, gave me a couple of just small little things that I can do to kind of get myself going and into the match. And, you know, it, it really helped me or, you know, I just said, you know, I'm, I'm going to not be maybe as, you know, energetic in the 
points because I'm just not feeling it. I'm just, I, I got to kind of warm up to the situation a little bit. And, you know, if I just don't see anything and I kind of go into my shell, he's going to think I'm having a bad day and I, you know, whatever else. But if I communicate that to him, then he can maybe take over the, uh, take over the load, if you will, a little bit. And, and we got through that match quite comfortably, you know, no issues. And, but if I don't say that, who knows, you know, maybe he, he right. gets annoyed that I, he feels like I'm not into it, which is totally not the case, but you know, he would have no way of knowing that if I didn't say something to him. And he's done that to me plenty of times too. No, the same, the same way where he's not feeling it on a day and I have to take over the load and, and we get through it and that's fine. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great example. Um, I see. Yeah. Most of, uh, I guess I hadn't talked about this, but most of the listeners are like USTA league and tournament players and stuff like that. And I'll, I'll sit there and watch matches all the time where like one player will get, I can tell they're angry at their opponent and their opponent might just like in your case, there, like might just be not feeling it that day, you know? And if, if they don't yeah. say anything, then uh, there can definitely be some friction and uh, it can kind of turn the wrong way fast. Um, For sure. I, I don't think that is subject to playing at our level. I think that works. That kind of thing works at every level of tennis, you know, whether it's a club match or a grand slam match. I mean, if you're not feeling it, you tell your partner, you're not feeling it. And then you guys can figure out a way to deal with it together, as opposed to maybe them, you know, maybe you're not saying it causing some friction. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It makes a ton of sense. So what about, um, so you couldn't think of a, a particular match where you made a strategic adjustment, but what's, what's an example of a strategic adjustment you might make. So like, what what's something you would notice? Like, is it something on the return or something about their positioning or uh, something about a particular player? And then you communicate. Oh yeah. It could, it could, it could really be anything, you know, it could be all of the above. It could be, okay, this guy, you know, we thought he's going to serve more to my backhand, but he's really serving to my forehand. So, you know, maybe I'm receiving that and I'm just not, I'm not noticing it or I'm not, you know, able to make the correct the, the adjustment to, to, to shift my position. And, and Joe's like, Hey, listen, it's, he's, you know, he's gone to your forehand six times in a row, like take that away, you know? Okay. Yeah. Maybe that's a good idea. Or, you know, maybe, Hey, listen, we said we're going to serve T, but he's really sitting on that one. So let's, you know, let's change it up and serve over here. Or, you know, those are, those are, um, you know, tech or, you know, tennis things, if you will. But then you could be like, same talking like, Hey, he looks a little down today, or he looks a little bit, you know, frustrated. Let's sort of maybe, you know, pick on him a little bit more in the sense of, you know, you know, make him play a bit more if, if, if that person is particularly, you feel like, oh, they're not feeling it today. So that kind of thing too, it's, you know, you look at the emotional side of it, maybe he's not as energetic for whatever reason, you know, and you try and take advantage of any of those little um, things that you see. So it could be any of, or all of those things. Sure. Yeah. That's, uh, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it serves, returns, volleys, uh, the whole thing that makes a lot of sense. So what's, uh, let's get into a little bit more strategy. What would you say is your uh, biggest strength as a doubles player? Um, I think uh, – it's a good question. I think I'm, I'm actually pretty – I'm easy to get along with on the court. Um, and I think I, I always want to try and get better. So I think, you know, I, I, I make a decent partner for a lot of people if, if that's what they're looking for, you know, like I'll, I'll always look to try and improve and, and do things to try and progress the team um, from a, from an actual tennis standpoint. I think I've, you know, I got a pretty good serve and I, I, I help out quite well as a service partner at the net. So I think um, if my partner also serves pretty well, I think, you know, we can make a pretty 
difficult duo to, to break. And I think if you hold serve consistently, then that usually means you can you know, put yourself in a position to win a lot of matches. So um, that's sort of what I try and look for in a partner is, is similar characteristics um, in that. I think, you know, I, I like to, I like to make it so we're, you know, we're, we're a great serving team and then we kind of build the rest around that. So how do you think about serve strategy? Um, do you, you know, a lot of people have a philosophy of, you know, I'm going to focus on my serving strengths. A lot of people say I want to serve to their weakness. Um, how do you think about that uh, using different formations, things like that? Yeah. You know, it, that kind of depends also on conditions. Like if I'm playing on a super fast court, maybe I'll, you know, or, or, or a low bouncing court, maybe I'll hit a few more sliders. If it's a, if it's a clay court or a, or a high bouncing court, maybe a few more kick serves or, or whatever. But, um, you know, for me, I think it's, it's about variety. It's about disguise. I don't hit the serve the absolute hardest of anybody. So I have to, I've found ways to manage my, my serve, make it difficult to read by, uh, or make it, make it difficult to re- return by, you know, disguise and, 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 um, yeah, mixing it up really. So I think, um, it's an important thing for me to, to not be predictable. Uh, I think that's, um, that's one thing that uh, is a, is a, is a constant um, staple, I guess, if you will, is that I, I don't want to be predictable out there. Sure. What, what about serving formations? How often are y'all using different formations and, and what, what kind of dictates that decision to go, you know, into an I formation versus a conventional? Um, yeah, it's just, it's kind of the same thing. I mean, it's, it's uh you definitely, we definitely try and mix it up a little bit. So we, we keep our opponents on our toes and that that's an important part of it. And then if you, again, this is a part of that clarity and communication. If somebody feels like, Hey, listen, this is really working. Let's, let's use this on, uh, on big points or let's use this a bit more or whatever, then, you know, you kind of, um, you know, maybe gravitate towards that particular formation, whether it be I or regular or, or anything like that. But, uh, I think as a general basis, we, we try and mix it up from the, from the, from the go is that we don't play, an overload of, of one formation or one play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't let the returner get into a rhythm. So uh, what about your, what's your biggest weakness as a doubles player and how do you think about kind of trying to mitigate that? Um, probably my biggest weakness, it, it was the case in tennis in general and in, uh, and in doubles. Well, two things, one, you know, probably my, my backhand side has never been my strength. I'll say, um, so in doubles, as I did in singles, I just try not to hit as many of them. <laughs> if you watch us play, I'll hit a backhand on the return if I need to, but then I, I try and park myself over in the alley and, and basically hit forehands if it's a matter of hitting more ground strokes. Um, and which is a similar play to what I did in singles. I would try and set up every point so I can, you know, reduce the chances of a player, you know, attacking my backhand. Um, and then the other thing is, is probably my athleticism. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, you know, tall and I have good reach, but I'm not the quickest person out there. And, um, I think that was always a, a thing I had to sort of, um, consider in singles and, and in doubles. The great thing is you have a partner that can maybe fill up some of those, some of those, uh, some of those weak points. And my, my partner for me is probably the best athlete we have in doubles. And I think, um, you know, he's able to cover up some of the, the weaknesses and, and athleticism that I bring because of he's because of his superior athleticism. So, you know, he's, uh, if you watch the play, he's, he's all over the place. He's, you know, creating, creating uh, issues for the other team by just how fast he moves and how high he can jump and all that kind of stuff. So what's your favorite position on the doubles court? Like, what do you mean? Uh, like server, servers, partner, returner, returners, partner. 
Uh, like that. Um, I would say server being the server or being the service partner are my two favorites. Okay. Got it. So you like to be on offense there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I've kind of based the the game around, you know, holding serve, um, whether it's serving myself or helping my partner hold serve and, and, you know, I feel like I, I do that pretty well. Do you prefer to signal or uh, talk when you're calling like serve location and poaching and uh, things like mm. that? It kind of depends, you know, with Joe and I, I think we mostly talk, um, but you know, if we feel like the momentum is on our side and we kind of want to keep running with it, then maybe, you know, we won't talk and we'll just run up to the net and make a signal. And, you know, you kind of get, you know, take time away from the opponents, make them feel like it's uh it's coming at them quickly and, you know, try and sure. take advantage of, or maybe, you know, you say something, but then, you know, when you, when the partner goes up to the net, all of a sudden he sees, uh, oh, this person's changed their returning position. So let's maybe change up the play. So I'd say we start more by, by talking, but are not afraid to go to signals. If, if we need to sort of like, uh, sort of like in football, you know, like people probably call plays, but they're not afraid to go to like a hurry up offense if necessary. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. What advice would you give yourself let's say 10 or 15 years ago when you were on tour if you could go back and talk to Rajiv Ram of 2005 2010 what advice would you give yourself I would say um well one thing is is I was very reluctant to sort of mess with equipment for a long time and like the game kind of gravitated towards uh you know bigger you know bigger more powerful rackets and different strings and uh, playing with a really small headed racket with a thin frame and um and and all that and I kind of you know had a fair bit of success as a junior and I, I kind of developed my game around playing you know with that kind of equipment and uh you know I, I would have given myself the advice to really look and see if there is a racket out there or or some kind of setup um, that could still allow me to play the way that I like to play and what comes naturally to me, but just help myself a little bit more. And I, I was able to find one in about 2015, but I wish I had, I wish I would have done a little bit, you know, a, a bit more research and, and looked into it a bit more in the years you're talking about. Sure. So you play with the pure drive. Is that right? I play with pure, the, uh, pure arrow. Okay. And what's, what's your setup with that? Do you add weight to it? What kind of strings? Yeah, there's a bit of weight to it. I don't honestly don't exactly know what the, uh, what the exact number is. Um, the guys that do it for me at P1 do a great job and they've been able to work with them for many years now, but uh, I use natural gut in the mains and um, in the crosses. Um, and the racket itself is just, it's just one of those, one of the few that I found were power and, 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 and new technology that is great, but it still has that sort of old school feel that, that really feels good to me and, and feels natural to me. What, what did you say you use in the crosses? You cut out there for a second. Solinko Tourbite Rough in the crosses. Okay. Got it. Okay. So a couple more questions here and then we'll get into some rapid fire. Uh, sure. If you could change one thing about the pro tour, what would it be? Um, for me, I feel like we do a pretty lousy job as tennis in general, thinking about the fan that you as a tennis fan or me as a tennis fan would go to a tennis, tennis tournament and 
I can only get into a stadium that I've bought a ticket for on odd games. I only have 90 seconds to do it. And then I have to sit down or sorry. Then I have to, you know, basically wait for another, you know, in the first game, uh, you know, before the first game, you have to wait three games because there's not an actual changeover after one game. I mean, that's ridiculous. You know, um, think that, you know, you can't freely, you know, move around and go get a drink or go get some food. If you want, like, if you go to a basketball game, soccer games in, in Europe and whatever else, or you go to a football game. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a whole experience, right? You can go and you can get your food, you can get your drinks, you can come and you can watch and you can kind of go and come as you please. I know tennis is a little different. Obviously we have to keep some, we can't maybe make it as, um, you know, free flowing as those, but I think there's, there's gotta be a better way than what we give the, the, the experience that we give to fans right now. Like you got to really love tennis to come to a tennis tournament. And I think we're losing, some casual sports fans because of these rules. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I, I think they're for the next gen, weren't they experimenting with letting people in like the side in between games and stuff? Yeah. Okay. I, I, uh, I can't, I can't say that for sure. I don't know, but I know we talked about it in doubles and we've had the same situation be where, you know, uh, you can uh, come in on the sides. Um, and I think it's great. And I think, you know, I think if the players knew that was the case, I think a, a lot of people would be would be okay with it. I, I just think that uh, it should be implemented a bit more. Yeah. Do, do you feel like most players uh, are in agreement with you? I mean, I know I see, you know, when I'm watching some of the singles players on TV, there will be like one person in the 60th row in Arthur Ashe that, you know, I would never see and they're just, they won't even serve. Um, so do you, do you feel like most players are in alignment there or? See, I don't know. I, I really don't know. I can't say that I've asked a whole lot of people about it, but I will say that I am probably one of those players who would see somebody in the row and tell them to sit down. And it's, yeah. it's basically because I know they're not supposed to be moving, but if I knew that they were supposed, they were okay to move and this was part of the deal, like I wouldn't have a problem with it. So it's almost like for, I, I think maybe a few players would, would be that way. The same way is that, you, you know, we know that they're not supposed to come in and out or there's somebody maybe not doing their job up there. That's not keeping the, you know, the, the, the fans coming in and out only on, on changeovers. But if we knew that that was okay, maybe it would be, you know, everybody would, would all, the, all the players would be a little bit more okay with it. Right. Yeah. And if, if it was like more than one person moving, it wouldn't be as obvious, right. It would just be like part of the thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's almost worse yeah. if it's one, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It definitely, uh, definitely makes sense. Uh, so what's it going to take for, uh, doubles to become more popular. Uh, oh, I don't really know. I think um, it's a big, big question. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of things. To be honest, I think um, I think perhaps more prize money would help. I'm not saying that from a from a greedy standpoint at all. Uh, I'm just saying that from a standpoint as if you equal out the prize money a little bit more from singles and doubles, I think perhaps then, you know, the doubles would, would get a little bit more validation, but chances of that happening are, are really slim. Um, I think, uh, I think a bit more, uh, you know, time on big courts and, and, and whatnot, um, a bit, a bit better marketing from our tour could, could also be a big thing and, and making it so where, doubles guys because i mean people are, are are attracted and i think people people are drawn to stories right so if you know hey listen this is this guy's deal this is where he came from this is what he's done and you know and, and if it's if it's sort of made a bit more personal 
as opposed to just sort of like an opening act to singles, but you actually, you actually learn about the people that are involved a little bit and you, and you kind of make the guys and girls that are playing doubles uh, a bit more uh, in the spotlight, if you will. I think that can really help. Um, I think that's sort of, uh, that's sort of the, the, the direction that I would take um, first and foremost, if I was, if I was uh, in charge of that is making the players, uh, making making their stories known a bit more and so that they're they're actually looked for by the fans at these tournaments right yeah yeah that's um kind of what i'm trying to do through this podcast hopefully yeah uh, no absolutely and we we all certainly appreciate it there yeah we all certainly appreciate it because i think that's a big um proponent to it you know i think it's because i think there's a lot of doubles guys who have really cool stories to tell and they've made careers for themselves in sport when they they wouldn't in singles and they've made a niche for themselves and then the other thing is that doubles is what's played by so many recreational players that it it seems like that would be a natural connection that a lot of fans would have with pro tennis right yeah yeah it's um it seems like a un maybe not untapped market but like uh, there's more potential there for sure. Yep. Um, so let's get into some rapid fire. Uh, so pick a a singles player on tour that you would uh, want to play doubles with. Pick a singles player on tour that I would want to play doubles with. Um, for the men tough to say anyone other than roger fetter um someone that i've seen for years and years and obviously appreciated everything that he's done and uh for the women i'd love to, i'd love to play mixed with serena i've gotten to play with venus obviously and i think serena's just uh you know yeah legend of the game and um would be pretty cool right well which of the the kind of top singles players uh do you feel like do you know or feel like would be really good at doubles if they focused on that. Um, I think I've played, I've never played Roger before. Uh, he's won a gold medal with Stan. So obviously he, he would be great. I think Rafa has shown over and over. He's also won a gold medal. So I think, uh, those two come to mind straight out of the gates. Um, uh, and then as far as anyone else, maybe over the years, I would say, uh, Leighton Hewitt was another one that had a lot of double success um, and was obviously a top singles player. Um, he was a little bit earlier, obviously, uh, back in the day. But um, I felt like I've played him quite a few times. I always felt like he was he was really good at doubles. He had such a good return to serve and uh, uh, really, really handy at the net, too. What's your favorite tennis book? I've always enjoyed reading. You know, tennis has always been something I've, I've looked up to tennis players. I'm a fan of the game. So I've always reading the stories about uh, the other players and I, uh, I've gotten been lucky enough to know some of them quite well. So my, my two would be, would be Andre Agassi's book, even though I don't have a incredibly personal relationship with him. Um, but his book was really cool to, to listen to his story. And then the other one was James Blake, who I consider a friend um, and, you know, kind of knew everything he had gone through. And then just for him to put pen to paper and, and tell his story was pretty awesome. So those, those two stand out for me. Awesome. What is your favorite non-tennis book? My favorite non-tennis book. You know, again, I, I enjoy reading about people that have done great things and, and whether it's in the world of sports or not. So one that comes to mind quickly is A Walk to Freedom, uh, the Nelson Mandela book. Um, read a couple of great books on Tiger Woods. 
um, who's another one that I, I look up to in sport. Um, that's the one that comes up to real quick. I've just been recommended the, uh, the Barack Obama book. Um, so I'll probably will get my hands on that when I get out of quarantine, but, uh, what that probably would have been good to have in quarantine to be honest, but, uh, <laughs> that would be another one I'm, I'd look forward to reading. Right. Awesome. Uh, what's your favorite tournament to play in? Um, for all the years that I played at Newport, that would have been it. Just had a lot of success. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, it's just such a cool thing. Again, being a fan of the game, getting to getting to see the the Hall of Fame induction on the weekend. You know, these are people that are getting into the Hall of Fame that are my heroes. Um, so that was really cool. Now, uh, I haven't been in Newport in a few years, but playing the, the tour finals um, in London and hopefully this year in Turin, um, it's like nothing else. You know, we get to play in, in, a, in a, such a massive arena like that, which is not normal for tennis players. So uh, that would be that would be it for me. What about Grand Slam? What's your favorite Grand Slam to plan you know they all have their special charm um yeah for me you know the u.s opens our home slam wimbledon's where tennis started um I, honestly if, if i'm being totally honest i probably look forward to this australia trip the most um it's great weather the, the people are so friendly and my college coach is a tournament director which which never hurts to have a little uh, a little inside help up there sometimes so just you know just uh they've, they've done such a nice job here of making it player friendly in australia so i'd have to say that as a player this one's my favorite yeah yeah i went uh for the first time last year and i remember getting on the flight back to the states uh sitting there with my my friend who i went with and i said i don't think i'll ever miss another australian open <laughs> and little did i know really 21 yeah i I was totally sold on the Australian Open. It was such a good fan experience. Um, and, uh, yeah, obviously, like, working in the industry, I, I can kind of justify uh, making the trip every year. So, um, it's kind of a – Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, yeah, it's close to the city. You can walk to everything. It really is – they do a great job here. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was super impressed. So, I'll definitely be back next year, uh, assuming everything kind of calms yeah, down. Yeah, nice. Um, so what is a, a tennis story that you've never told anyone or just your favorite tennis story? If, if you uh, want to go that route. Um, well, this is probably going to be it. Not that I've never told anyone, but the fact that I yeah. had to be in quarantine, uh, this whole last year could be a story in itself. I mean, we, Joe and I were in, uh, yeah, we're in the same situation before the O2. He he was considered a close contact, and he had 14 days of isolation before we before we played in London. We we got pulled out of the Paris Masters, so we're we're kind of pros at this quarantine thing. Um, interesting question. Uh, um, this one time when I first started playing back in I, was, I played a, a challenger in Korea, and I was flying home and got on the flight. You know, I don't know how long it was, maybe it was a 10-hour flight, flying back to California, let's say, and maybe like six, seven hours into it, and then she just didn't feel like anything was happening. It felt like we were still going at the same speed and the same thing. It felt like, geez, it's about time to be landing. Still not happening. So it was like 12 hours later, I'm like, okay, something's really, really off here, and it turned out that there was somebody on the flight that, or for some reason, they couldn't land in America, they couldn't land in Mexico, flipped the plane around, went all the way back to Japan. We got like three-quarters of the way to America from Korea, and we flipped the plane around Went, went all the way back to Japan because of some reason they had to clear some paperwork up, something took us off the plane, boarded it three hours later, gave us like a piece of bread to eat back on the 10 hour flight back to America. And it was like, it took me like 20 hours to get home from, from Asia when 
it should have only taken 10. So that was, that was pretty nuts. That's a tough one. Yeah. I had, um, yeah. Uh, Nick Monroe was on a few months ago and he, he had a story of a challenger that he played in, uh, in Africa. And he was actually shot at when he was in a car. Um, on the wow. This tournament. Yeah. He, he had an amazing story, uh, for that one. So, Wow. Um, so no, that's any, not happening uh, to me. Any um, final requests for the audience, for anybody listening? Well, no, I would just say, you know, look, we, you kind of mentioned this on doubles and I, I'm assuming a lot of these people that listen to the podcast are, are doubles people and players and, you know, mm-hmm. come out, watch our matches. And, you know, I think, I think we as a group are generally, you know, more friendly and more approachable than some of the other the other players not that they're not friendly but we're a bit more approachable and if you have any questions if you have any like thoughts of interaction we, we, we love it we love the support and we all you know we all uh enjoy attempting to grow the game of doubles that we play and i think um yeah you know come out and watch us and, and don't don't be afraid to to see if you can uh, ask a question to somebody or or, or start a conversation because i think um, you'll find that most of us are, are we enjoy that and we enjoy sort of promoting our side of the sport uh, quite a lot awesome Great. Well, this was a lot of fun. Uh, thanks for coming on and uh, yeah, we'll have to do it again sometime. Yeah. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you're a doubles player, you'll love our weekly doubles newsletter. Every Thursday, we send you doubles tips and strategies to help you improve your game and become a smarter player. When you sign up, you'll get a free 10 page guide on how to play with more confidence and dominate at the net in doubles. You can go to thetennistribe.com to sign up now.